The text for this afternoon is Hebrews chapter 9, verses 11 through 14. We'll read that passage together once more. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? After the sermon, we will respond with the singing of hymn 79, all five stanzas. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, this is a powerful phrase that we have at the beginning of our passage here. When Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, he entered once for all into the holy places. Not by means of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood. This is the crowning act of the earthly ministry of Jesus Christ in which he was addressing with a finality all of our sins and obtaining salvation for us to reunite us with God. The sermon this afternoon is on, once again, the tabernacle. This is the last one in that series of the the places of the tabernacle. This afternoon we're hearing the Word of God concerning the most holy place. And we have this passage from Hebrews as our text as we, as we hear about these things. We have this as our focus because we acknowledge that whatever we read in the Old Testament about the tabernacle, about the temple, we have to understand these things to be pictures or types or copies of something greater. And this is something that the, the author to the Hebrews is writing how all of these things were fulfilled in Jesus Christ. We cannot understand the beauty and importance of the ministry, the Old Testament tabernacle and the temple, without seeing what they were really pointing to, and what they were teaching, what they were promising, and what all of the people of God were anticipating, the things that we now enjoy and which we look back on and celebrate. All of these things that occurred in the Old Testament, in connection to the tabernacle, the temple, all the ceremonies and sacrifices, these were pictures of the one sacrifice that really mattered. The ministry in the Old Testament, in the tabernacle, in the temple, all of that ministry, we can sort of understand it to be a bit like a dress rehearsal. A dress rehearsal for the real act of salvation that would be accomplished by Jesus Christ. And so the crowning moment of 
Christ's earthly ministry was indeed his sacrifice on the cross, his death. And that death of his marked the end of the old covenant and the beginning of the new. This great moment of salvation, the sacrifice, the death of Christ, this was anticipated in the ministry of the most holy place. So, the most holy place, or as maybe it's commonly referred to, or as it used to commonly be referred to, the holy of holies. What was it like? What was in it? And if you were an Israelite, how would you view it? What would it mean to you to understand that God had given this gift and this command about what is to be carried out there? Exodus 25 and 26, we, in, in those passages, we read about the most holy place itself and the ark that was in it. We read how it was separated from the holy place that we considered this morning. We understand how restricted the most holy place was, the innermost place in the tabernacle. It was a pretty simple room. It was about 15 feet by 15 feet square. And there was nothing in it except for the Ark of the Covenant. And we should pause here for a minute and and just observe that we read in Hebrews 9 in the beginning here that inside that second veil, so inside the most holy place, so verse 3, it said, Behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place having the golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold. So we just acknowledge that this morning we heard about the holy place, and in the holy place, the golden altar of incense was. And and here in Hebrews, we read that that golden altar of incense was in the most holy place. So it appears to be that at some point, the altar of incense, well, it was used for some time in the holy place, but then at some point, perhaps in the intertestamental period, it became more closely associated with the most holy place. And that could be perhaps because the, um, the blood was sprinkled on the horns of that altar once a year on the Day of Atonement, and so it became closely associated with the Ark of God. Just wanted to point that out to eliminate any confusion that there might be between this morning's uh, passages and this morning's reading and what we read here in, in Hebrews. So, at the time of the institution of the tabernacle, In the time of tabernacle worship in the desert and in the promised land, the most holy place only had the Ark of the Covenant. It was the only thing that was in there. And this is quite strange. It should be quite strange for us to consider that the Ark was there instead of an image of God. There was no image of God in the temple of God. There was no visible indicator of God's identity in that place. Instead, there was just a chest. That's that's what an ark is. It's, It's a container. It was a square box. It was a container for something important. And this should be strange, as I just said. It would be strange to anyone who was familiar at all with pagan holy places, pagan temples, pagan methods of worship. Every holy place 
contained an image of its God. This situation for Israel and their mode of the worship of the Lord God, this was utterly unique. So, for example, in the worship of Egyptian deities, and remember that the people of Israel had just come out of Egypt, so they would be very familiar with the kind of worship that would be offered or the, the, the kind of worship that would be conducted in Egyptian religion. So, for historians, too, to, to claim that much of Old Testament religious practice was not divinely inspired or divinely given by God, but was borrowed from ancient Near Eastern standard practices, this would be a jarring testament to the fact that the people of Israel were not copying other religions. If they were copying other religions, there would certainly be some image of God, you know, like a golden bull or something like that, inside the most holy place. No, this is according to God's command. This is ordained by God. There is no image in there. There is a chest. There is a container, an ark. In Egyptian worship, the example we were just talking about, there would be one of the gods, one of the images of the gods that was being worshipped there in the holy place. And, and the, priest, the priests were on rotation. A priest would go in to that holy place and do all kinds of ministry for that god. He would, you know, for example, bathe it, keep it clean. He would serve it food. And often they would take that idol out of the temple, out of the holy place, and perform divination ceremonies. So one example of that was in, in Egypt, they would, uh, if they wanted to know the will of a god, they would take the idol, and one of the things they would do was this, this boat ceremony. They would put the idol in a boat, and a crowd of people would all together hold the boat up, and it would, the boat would move with the, the collective will of the people. And it was uh, believed, it was understood that the, the God was letting His will be known to the people as a whole. And if the God wanted uh, the people to do this thing, then the boat would somehow you know, be moved collectively that way. And if the God wanted the people to do that thing, then the boat would the boat that was holding that God would be moved you know, the other way. They were channeling the will. They were channeling the power of the God that they were worshiping through that, that statue. Totally different here. There's no idol. There's no image of the Lord. There's just this chest with the golden mercy seat. It's holiness guarded by these golden cherubim. The entrance to the most holy place also guarded by the cherubim woven into the, into the veil that protected it. And inside the chest was a copy of the testimony. What is that? Well, it was a copy of the Ten Commandments, the law of God that God had given or was going to give to His people. Later on, the whole law of Moses was contained in the ark. Maybe you remember um, when Josiah, King Josiah, was instituting the reforms. Um, they were rebuilding the temple and, and cleaning it out and reestablishing the worship there. And they found, Hilkiah found the book of the law of the Lord. And they read it and they um, 
had to humble themselves because they understood how far they had departed from all of the laws of God. So they found that in the, in the temple. So inside the chest was a copy of the Ten Commandments and then eventually also a jar of manna and Aaron's staff that blossomed. All these things should be very strange. And it gets even stranger. For 364 days of the year, nothing was done in there. Nothing. It sat there. The most holy place had nothing done in it. Nothing was done with the ark. No priest went in there. There was no service at all in the most holy place. 364 days of every year, nobody went in. Imagine being an Israelite and you were describing your worship to a foreigner. And you were describing the, the temple, the tabernacle, and the ark and, and everything else that's in there. And this foreigner might ask, you know, what's your God like? Can I, can I, can I see it? Can I see him? What does he look like? And you would have to answer, well, no, actually it's, it's impossible. You can't see what our God looks like. We don't have, we don't have any image. Or he might ask, you know, well, are they going to bring your God out sometime so that we can see him? No. Um, we don't bring any of those things out. There's, those are holy and sacred and they, and they stay in there. And what's more, we don't even have an image of our God. We, he's not portrayed. In that room, there's just a box and in that box is a set of commandments that our God gave us. And the person you were talking to would what in the world? What a strange religion. So what do they do in that, in that, in that room with that box, with the, with the mercy seat and with the, with the commands that your God gave you? What do they do in there? And you would say, well, nothing. No one ever goes in there, ever, except once. Once a year, someone goes in there. What a strange religion. Well, what is being commanded? What is being taught? What is being commanded with the function or with the lack of function in the most holy place? Well, first of all, we acknowledge that yes, indeed, God was present there. It wasn't as if this was an empty room. This is the, the hot spot of the dwelling place of God. God was there in a powerful way. We read in Exodus 25 that this is where God's presence would be and that's where he would reveal his will to the people of Israel. People of Israel will have a sense that God himself is there. As we read in chapter 25, verse 22, God says to the people of Israel, There I will meet with you. And from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim that are on the ark of the testimony, I will speak with you about all that I will give you in commandment for the people of Israel. This was his place of revelation. There between the cherubim was the glory of God. The people saw that glory cloud descending on the tabernacle, and they would know that he was filling his home there, his room, and then later on it would ascend to signal that it was time to pick up and continue their journey. And then the high priest... The high priest would wear that ephod that contained the stones. There were two special stones, the Urim and the Thummim. 
And these would be used in some manner by God to communicate his will to the people. And, and God also met with Moses there in the tent of meeting and spoke with him face to face as a man speaks with his friend. So God was there. And for everyone who was not a high priest, and for everyone including the priest, 364 days a year, he was unapproachable. That's the point. You cannot come near. You may not. And if you try, God's holiness will break out against you and you will perish. We heard this with the restrictions for the courtyard and with the holy place, but this was very true for the most holy place, especially true for this place. Only the high priest could go in once per year on Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. But this isn't right. It shouldn't be like that. That's the point. We were created to be with God all the time, with nothing separating us. Think about this. In the most holy place was the ark, and it wasn't, the ark itself wasn't the thing that was so special. It was what was in the ark. It was a container of the testimony of God. The primary object in the most holy place was the law of God. Is that strange? Yeah, maybe it sounds strange, but not if we, if we think about what that should call to mind. What, what is the Ten Commandments? We hear some version of this often in connection with the reading of the law every Sunday. The Ten Commandments are the prime description and prescription about how people are supposed to live with God and with each other as fellow image bearers of God. Inside the ark was the testimony about how life was supposed to be. And it was testimony, and give thanks to God for this, it was testimony to what would be regained. That's what was in the most holy place. That was who God was for His people. I am supposed to live with you. You're supposed to be with me. We're supposed to love each other and enjoy each other. And it's broken, but we're going to get it back. That's what was in the most holy place. Pure love. Perfect harmony with God. Walking with Him. Living every moment in His glory. In complete bliss overwhelmed by the glory of God and a perfect sharing of that with your fellow people. No sin, no covetousness, no envy, no idolatry, no hatred, no murder, none of those things that plague this world. Just pure godly love that fills the earth. That is what was inside the ark. But it was gone at the moment. It was missing the world was stained with sin so that we could not be near to God anymore. That was out of reach. But it was being given back. The holiness of God, instead of, instead of being something that brought perfect, blissful joy and comfort, 
His holiness had become a source of terror. You can't touch the ark. You can't look at it. Just before the service, we were talking about the episode with Uzzah when the ark was being transported to Jerusalem by David. It was being done in an incorrect way. It wasn't being carried on the poles. Instead, it was put on an ox cart. And while it was being rolled along, the oxen stumbled and the ark was jostled and and it was about to fall to the ground. And Uzzah instinctively put out his arm to steady it and he touched the ark and he was struck dead. You know, when his thinking... Out of reverence for the ark, he was thinking, oh, it should not touch the ground, but he didn't have a proper sense of his own disgustingness before God. It's better if the ark touches me instead of the ground. Well, that was completely wrong. God's purity and holiness is incompatible with the sinfulness of the human race. We can't have that closeness with God can't go into that most holy place and be near to God because of sin. And as long as humanity would be under the curse of sin, God has to stay removed over here, human beings over there, lest we perish. But look, God had instituted a holy ministry in order to assure His people that even though His presence was so severely restricted and His holiness was so dangerous, He had made a way in. (coughs) He had made a way in. At this time, only the high priest could go in once per year, but what a comfort that was for the people of God to know that he was doing this not on his own behalf, but he was going in as a representative of the people, having confessed all of the sins of the people, having slaughtered an animal for them and bringing that blood into the presence of God, presenting it to him, sprinkling it on the mercy seat. They were assured that your sins are atoned for. They're covered over, they're covered over, and I will not break out against you because of them. I am not against you anymore. Because your sins are covered over, God would continue to live with you. What a comfort and what a blessing. But it was still not the real thing. It was so incomplete. The full measure of communion with God had not been achieved yet. If if it was, if it was, then once a sacrifice was made, people could, could go in and just come into that holy place, into the most holy place, and be near to God, and he would have no reason to break out against them. But no, their sins were not completely dealt with yet. God was showing that, yes, the shedding of blood was the way back into close fellowship with God. The shedding of blood was the way into his presence. And this Ministry, especially on the Day of Atonement, it was a testimony that it was going to happen. That mankind would be reconciled to God, that that love, that harmony would be restored, but a better sacrifice was necessary. Sacrifice after sacrifice, but the cleansing of sin was never truly accomplished. It was never accomplished in a way that 
people could be purified, body and soul, and made acceptable in the presence of God. That's what was meant by what we read in Hebrews 9 verse 8. The Holy Spirit was showing by all this that the way into the most holy place had not been disclosed as long as the first tabernacle was still functioning. These things were going on because that real work wasn't done yet. And then we read in verses 13 and 14 of our text, If the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the, ha- with the ashes of a heifer, if they sanctify for the purification of the flesh, right? So in other words, when these sacrifices and all of these offerings were, were brought to God and the people washed themselves ceremonially, it was enough to maintain that temporal relationship with God in their, in their home, that God would dwell with them. But there was still something lacking. It wasn't, it wasn't complete. But then he goes on, How much more will the blood of Christ purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Only the blood of Christ can cleanse us, body and soul, from all of our sins. Jesus Christ took his own blood, the perfect sacrifice, effective for all of us, and brought that blood into the real most holy place, the heavenly holy place, the actual presence of God, and offered it to him, and we have been forgiven. God was pleased to dwell with the people of Israel on account of the promise that that was going to happen. God blessed His people because of the certainty that Christ would come and make the real perfect sacrifice. This is what they were looking forward to. And this is what we Christians today look back on and celebrate. The sacrifice has been made. Jesus Christ's blood has been shed. It was the only sacrifice that could truly clean your soul, cleanse your conscience, remove the guilt that would cripple you in the presence of God. It's gone. Think about that. You, in the past week, these sins that we have committed, what would that cause you to feel if they weren't dealt with and you were somehow immediately now transported into the throne room of God, seeing, comprehending His glory, and you're stained with those sins, what sort of guilt would cripple you? It's inconceivable, but that has been removed. Your conscience is clean. You can stand before God and know that God looks at me as if I'm perfect. And he's looking at me not with displeasure and with disappointment. He's looking at me in love. He's going to wrap his arms around me and he's going to wipe every tear from my eyes. How incredible. When Christ died, the veil in the temple was ripped from top to bottom by God himself, showing that the way into God's presence was now open for all of us. We're not held off at a distance anymore. 
We have been sprinkled with the blood of Christ, and now we are welcome. Our sins have been taken care of. They're gone, and we can approach now with boldness and with unspeakable joy. In all of these ceremonies, the Old Testament people of God had these pictures of something that was promised, something that was still to come, something they were yearning for in hope. But we have been given these pictures, reminders of the salvation that, that has been done. It's completed. And nothing stands between us and God. Now paradise has been restored Our loving harmony with God and one another has been restored. And we see these testimonies of that fact whenever we celebrate, when we observe baptism, the Lord's Supper. That's God's testimony that this sacrifice has been done. The Ark of the Testimony, the Ark of the Law of God, it testified on the one hand to the tragic loss of harmony between God and us. It testified to the strife within creation. The strife that we experience among one another. But it testified to the future restoration of that harmony. Love for God. Love for neighbor as we were designed to live in the first place. We have to finish the course of this life before we get to be promoted to that perfect state. But since we have now already been washed by the Spirit of Christ, and we have been made a new creation already. We already have a beginning of that, of that paradise restored today. We're able to live as those who have been renewed by the Spirit of Christ, able to have a beautiful beginning, a beginning of the keeping of God's wonderful law. God has begun to restore all these things. We have the first fruits of it now in this life, And it should be wonderfully and beautifully evident in the life of the church. And I know it is in this congregation. The way that love and care is extended to one another. The way that the death of Christ is proclaimed all the time here and celebrated We're able to live as those renewed by the Spirit of Christ. We have a a beginning of the keeping of God's law. We've been brought near to God by the blood of Christ. Body and soul, we have been cleansed from all unrighteousness. We read these words of celebration and comfort from Romans 5. Since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Peace with God. That's what the world was yearning for and waiting for. Instead of God having to be sectioned off from our lives. We have peace with Him now. 
peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand, and we boast in the hope of the glory of God. What a life we have now with God. All the days of our lives, we can think of every day from the moment we wake up until the time we go to sleep, every act of life, the, the things that are just mundane, everyday things, up to the, the most grand activities that we could ever engage in, every minute of every day, we are living in the most holy place of God, in His very presence, with our loving God and Father. We have been sprinkled with the precious blood of Christ, washed from all our sins, and welcomed with joy into His presence. Amen.